0: So then, 20 years later, if you look back at the history books at the 2022 Dutch Grand Prix, you'll be like, ah, what a boring race. Verstappen starts on pole, Verstappen wins with a comfortable margin. Oh, yeah, it's all right. George Russell came in second. I wonder what happened in this race that made it so interesting. But if that's the case, Kunal, why should we bother doing the review, right? Normal day, right? Verstappen starts on pole, Verstappen wins. We've seen this, what, 20 times already this year? Normal days.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we actually had the same conversation For the 2022 British Grand Prix, which, you know, Carlos Sainz started on pole. He won that race, his first race win of his career. But there was just so much that happened between the start and the checkered flag. Yeah, it felt like one of those war strategy movies where you could see both the generals
0: sitting on the other side of the room, tinkering over their tactics and just kind of predicting what's going to happen it was literally like a chess match that played out in front of us. That was amazing. But just how did we get here to see Max Verstappen winning the Dutch Grand Prix again? Max Verstappen taking, what is it, uh, I think ninth or 10th victory of the year? We've almost lost count. It seems simple, but this is exactly what we're going to have on this episode of the Inside Line F1 podcast. Analyzing just how did we get to this situation? How did the VSC influence the race? How did the safety car influence the race? And could we potentially have seen Lewis Hamilton Finally, get his first win of the year. That's going to be a lot of good stuff coming up later in the episode, but let's not start with all the heavy stuff immediately, right? Let's start with some of the lighter things which includes, firstly, introducing the three of us. My name is Somal Arora, folks. I am the host of The Driving Force on Disney Plus Hotstar. And the first voice you heard on the show after me was Kunal Shah, the former marketing head of the Force India F1 team, who's also an FIA-accredited Formula One journalist for the Play Network. And back again for a final episode is Sundaram, F1 stats guru, right here with us. So the, the, the funny thing, guys, this weekend... I don't know where to begin, honestly. Because you can firstly start off with qualifying in Max's amazing lap in that case. Or then you could be like, oh my God, Mercedes is faster. Then you could sit back on and wonder, well, are Ferrari now slower than Mercedes? So, just where do we begin, Sundaram? Uh, There's just so many places that we can start at.
2: Yeah, there are way too many places to start at. But uh, the first place where I had a little sneak peek uh, on is Ferrari's wheel of misfortune at the privilege of having a little glance at that. And this time, it's actually ended at uh, Surprise Pit Crew with a sudden pit stop. And just to top it off, there's a sudden uh, un- unsafe release as
0: well.
1: Sundaram, I have to ask, are you by any chance still in Sanford? Because I hear a lot of party music in the background. And you know, you've know, ne- you've always said you're a Fernando Alonso fan. But maybe secretly, you are a Max Verstappen fan celebrating still in sound food because he had a fantastic win but you know I'm not going to start with all the serious stuff I mean we got to talk about the pigeons right there were just so many of them out there like I, I remember the marshals were actually running trying to get the pigeons off the circuit like Perfect track limit sensors, if that's the way to put it. And some of those pigeons were really brave, especially during the Formula 2 races. And unfortunately, one pigeon uh, got martyred by, I think, Marcus Armstrong during the sprint race uh, on Saturday, the Formula 2 sprint race. And then uh, speaking of Saturday, Sebastian Vettel literally came up with a dad joke when he said, I hit the Zend in Sound food, talking <laughs> of his... Excursion in qualifying, which saw him have yet another Q1 exit.
0: Yeah, firstly, uh, we will miss Paddy the Pigeon. I mean, that was really unfortunate what happened in the incident there with Marcus Armstrong. But on on, on other terms, I don't know what happened with the pigeons over there. I mean, the, the pigeons in Mumbai aren't quite as aggressive as they are over here. I mean, if you look at them with one stare, they run away over here. So you've got to actually figure out what they eat back in the Netherlands for all the pigeons. But the pigeons aside, not actually pigeons aside, let's actually stay on the pigeons for a second. Because isn't it the second time we're seeing burrs kind of hamper a race? No, not hamper, but kind of get in the way in the, of a race? Because I think Vettel had an incident in 2016 Canada. I suppose it's seagulls for Vettel. So who are the pigeons' favorite round? Do do we know, by chance?
1: I don't know. Maybe Montoya had the favorite in a deer. There have been groundhogs. There have been the armadillos or the Godzilla in, in Singapore, as Max Verstappen has called it before as well. So had this been the Bernie Ecclestone era, he would have figured a way to get an invoice to the pigeons for watching the race so up close uh, for free, right? <laughs> so, that, that's that's one thing. But anyway, pigeons aside, there's, a uh, you know, Frederick Vasseur, the team principal of Sauber Alpha Romeo Racing, depending, you know, whether you call it Sauber if you're an old-timer like me or Alpha Romeo Racing if you of know, somebody who's just started to follow the sport he turned around and said something damn interesting about dnf so did not finish records because his team has had several he said sometimes it's technical sometimes it's the engine sometimes it is latifi and as as luck would have it <laughs> it was an engine that got alfa romeo a, a dnf this this season and uh, or this race and and i'm leaving my best for the last, right? There's this whole talk of Colton Herta going to Alpha Tauri with an FIA exception towards a super license and all of that. I'm sure you guys have read it everywhere. But uh, what you've not heard is Franz Toss, the team principal of Alpha Tauri, actually turned around and said, I have never seen Colton Herta. All I really care about is his relationship with the right side pedal. I have to educate whoever, uh, you know, Red Bull puts uh, in, in my cars. And maybe it's going to be you next. Literally, that's what he said.
0: You know what? The funny part is Lewis Hamilton was asking the other day, who is Franz Tost? And now Franz Tost is asking who's Colton Herter? I mean, what is it? Is it some sort of bubble, the Paroch Canal? Because you've been there more more than we have. Do people really not know each other there? Or is it like too many people that they forget? I can't imagine him not knowing Colton Herter for, for the first time.
1: Well, as long as Colton Hertha doesn't turn around and say, What is Formula One? and oh my God, what's a super license? I you know, I'm driving some of the fastest cars on the planet on the other side of the pond without a super license. And suddenly you make me cross a pond and say I need a super license. So as long as Colton Hertha doesn't turn around and say, What's a super license? I don't care if Hamilton doesn't know Toss or Toss doesn't know Herta. I mean, but that maybe that's something we should speak about later on in the show, should the FI make an exception for Colton Herta or not? But that's later on in the show.
0: Toss for thought. Food for thought? No, whatever. Sorry, bad joke aside, we we should get to the race in a second. But folks, firstly, we have to take a short break. But coming back up, we will be talking about the strategy and why the Dutch GP went the way it went. So, see you in a second. Hey, folks, welcome back into the Inside Line F1 podcast. Don't worry, we're done with the pigeon chatter. We're done with the France Toss chatter. Now, on to the main race. And oh my goodness, where do we begin, guys? Because there's just so many places to actually start from, including, firstly, the start where we saw Lewis Hamilton come together with Carlos Sainz. They luckily were all right. Kevin Magnussen had his incident and all that. But I suppose in a race like this, it'll be so much fun to watch it with an expert live, And that's luckily what we're going to have with Steve Slater in Monza next weekend. So that, firstly, is going to be amazing. So if you haven't signed up, folks, You can do that for free now by checking out the link in our description. Join us for Monza. Let's watch the race together and analyze all the data with Steve Slater to get a better idea of just exactly how he watches the race. And you can send in your questions in real time as well. So that's going to be a lot of fun. But the first question I actually have to ask you, Sundaram, is just what was your rating for the race in a way? Do you think it was a bad one? Because many people feel that had it not been for the VSCs or the SCs, this could have been a more climatic finish so how would you rate it
2: Oh i would actually rate it quite high um, in in terms of my ranking because going into the sandford weekend there was not much expectations of of the type of racing that we would expect because of the, of, of the circuit's characteristics but obviously the in the increased drs zone and obviously this this year's cars would have probably helped that a little bit but but i think the overall race was ebbing and flowing and, and that was great to see We had something happen, some sort of an incident happen and it settles and then there was yet again another incident straight away. What I loved best about this race was the fact that once again we saw Red Bull and Mercedes up at front fighting for the win and throwing strategic punches at each other. Something that we've seen in in Hungary, in in Barcelona in the past and that's something that I've I've missed. That's something that I've genuinely missed as a fan, uh, as someone who watches the sport and it was just great to see them throw Throw punches at each other every few laps. It was great.
0: So, how would you rate it, Kanal? Because I, I get a feeling for Sundaram, it's going to be something like an eight point five. Because that's the same was for me. He's, he's basically covered the entire point that I had in mind. That we finally are getting to see Mercedes versus Red Bull again, conditional as it may be, of course, based on track characteristics. But you you generally have
1: been a bit more harsh in terms of your ratings. So, I don't know what, what is it going to be this time. I think now I'm forced to be generous just because I've been harsh. But no, frankly speaking, I mean, if I was to rate the weekend overall, I would say 11 on 10, okay? Because uh, as as uh, you know, as a package, if you consider Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday again, uh, the Dutch Grand Prix, Sandfoot, a historic circuit, delivered a classic in qualifying. It delivered a classic even during the race. Uh, you know, we were all waiting for a Ferrari versus a Red Bull and suddenly we were, you know, delivered with a surprise, uh, Red Bull versus Mercedes, Hamilton versus Verstappen battle with Russell somewhere in the mix. So to to me, it ticked off all the boxes. And my favorite part of the race was actually when the camera panned to Hannah Schmidt's on the Red Bull pit wall and we caught her smiling. And, you know, it, you said it's a game of high speed chess. And that's so true when you look at these kind of strategy driven races right because it was only strategy that gave uh, drivers great results uh, you know on the weekend and you know sundaram you pointed out saying uh, overtaking was going to be tough and you know taking cue from that actually it was overtaking thanks to being on different strategies why the race actually ended up becoming very very interesting and I just love how Ferrari and Mercedes have to try just so hard uh, at doing something that comes seemingly so naturally to Red Bull Racing and Hannah Schmitz and the entire team out there. I mean, each time Max was doing something, you just seemed that, yeah, maybe that's the right thing to do uh than whatever everyone else was was doing out there. So my my rating stands at a very hardcore eleven on ten. And I know this is exactly where a lot of viewers are gonna write in saying, oh my God, but you rated that you know really bad race and eleven on ten. Or, but you know, I'm very transient but also very generous with my rating, I guess.
0: Actually taking cue from that one, uh, I, I have to ask about just how could the race have been better in any way? Because for many people, of course it it, it helps to be neutral in this case to, of course, give a better rating. But if you're a Mercedes fan, obviously this might have felt like a bit of a punch in the gut, right? So let's actually get to just that. Let's actually get to analyzing why for at least some people it could have been a little more better. And I think the best way to do it is to go by it sequentially because merging all the incidents together is going to be too much because there are so many great variables to analyze. So let's start off with the first incident that we had in mind. Let's actually lay down the framework We saw Ferrari and Red Bull Racing start on the softer compounds because, of course, they were starting up ahead. They needed a bit of a boost at the start to make sure that they weren't passed by the other cars. And Mercedes taking cue from that, they were like, "Okay, if you're on the softs, we're already starting behind you. We can go on the mediums and maybe try to experiment with what we can do by going longer. That's the framework set. We, I think, reached a midway part of the race or or somewhere thereabouts where Red Bull Racing and Ferrari had made their first stops. Leclerc hadn't quite gone ahead of Max Verstappen. Signs, we should come to him. We should discuss his race. But after the first stop, Mercedes were leading one and two. Actually, after Red Bull and Ferrari's first stop, Mercedes were leading one and two. Then they made their pit stops and went on the hard compound tyres and they were following Verstappen and then Leclerc was somewhere behind them, behind the two Mercedes as well. So, Let's get to this particular situation, right? Lap 40-something, whatever it may be. I don't remember the exact one. But Yuki Sonora has his incident, the VST, which we should answer in a second. about What exactly happened? And was it the new crash kit or stop kit or something quite like that? But let's imagine the VST hadn't quite happened, Sundaram. How do you see the race going from that case? Because at that moment in time, Mercedes seemingly were very confident that their one-stop strategy would have helped them in winning the race because the hard compound tyres were actually doing pretty well. The degradation was lower than what they expected. The the tyres were holding up well and even Max on the radio was surprised. And remember, Red Bull Racing had to make another extra stop to go on the softs later on. So... How do you see things panning out? No VSC? What would have happened in your opinion? I think it was
2: pretty straightforward in terms of strategy, like you mentioned. So Mercedes were going to have a one-stopper continuing on the hards until the end, whereas Red Bull would have to make a pits, uh, have to make another pit stop. But Verstappen is quite keen on not switching onto the hards because of uh, very little data that they had on, on that set of tyres, Red Bull as a whole. So he would have most likely gone back to the uh, softs closer to lap 50 with 20 odd laps to go and and by then Hamilton's tyres would have been I mean I mean by the end of the race Hamilton's tyres would have been 40 laps old I really don't know if he would have been able to keep Verstappen behind him for the length of of that race probably 10 laps into uh, his stint his final stint I think Verstappen would have caught up to Hamilton and he would have overtaken him regardless but it would have been a very interesting fight is, is what I think
1: Yeah, you know, you are right. I mean, Red Bull's two stoppers versus Mercedes's one stop—that would have been the story we would have been discussing today, and which was actually the better uh, strategy to follow. Uh, Two things in mind. I uh, in my mind, first is I believe Max Verstappen would have won either way. It's just the manner in which he would have won would have been different. Red Bull believe he would have finished fifteen seconds ahead of the pair had things played out normally Mercedes believe they would have anyway lost to uh, Max Verstappen, but the gap wouldn't have been as much. So the winner would have been Max Verstappen either way. So this also throws all the conspiracy theories out of the window. And it's, it's very unfortunate that there is this you know minority segment of fans that believe that conspiracies are what happen in the sport time and time again, and F1 is fixed and all that crap comes up. And I say crap for a very... Uh, serious reason, because you know, when a Grand Prix is running, when you're playing high-speed game of chess, literally, I'll take Sawmill's analogy forward. You can't keep looking at what the other players, uh, you know, playing next to you are co- doing constantly, and then keep that in mind while also keeping your and your opponent's moves in mind. So that's that's one thing. And second is, you know, to cue to what uh, Sundaram said. And Samuel, what you said about Mercedes starting on the mediums and and so on, Mercedes knew that they were closer to Red Bull and Ferrari in race pace this weekend than, say, for example, in Spa, right? Uh, and you said circuit characteristics. The lower the Mercedes can drive the car, and if the, the the circuit doesn't have bumps, they actually are in a very sweet performance window. So, your Mark Hughes reports that the the race. Pace deficit was just about two tenths, which got Mercedes into the fight. Right, so they they started on the medium to do something different. They could also start on the medium because the run into the first corner was not as long, so they could afford to have sort of a different tire than than people around them, and you know not be overtaken there. Right, and and uh, the second, which is something that everybody is talking about, Mercedes's pace on the hard. Uh, was what surprised everyone. But one thing we also should keep in mind is Max Verstappen's pace on the soft because he was able to push without suffering from as much degradation than, say, for example, Charles Leclerc. And Mercedes didn't even touch the soft uh, in the race uh, uh, you know, on, on Sunday, right? So just very interesting uh, how teams are using all sets of permutations and combinations to get track position to finish ahead of their rivals eventually when it comes to race day
2: and, and also since you mentioned conspiracy i i have to top that off with another point but i won't give it too much of attention what what i felt is yeah the, the sort of views that people have on on social media is it's it's quite sad to see but what, what i felt is that there was more at stake in last year's championship than this year for for any, for red bull to pull any such sort of tactics if if that was required, maybe that would have happened sometime in Abu Dhabi or in one of the previous races last year, where the,
0: it was very closely matched between Hamilton and Verstappen. Exactly. And the kind of views that people have put out on social media are, frankly, atrocious. Like, to hear things like Hannah Schmitz actually called AlphaTauri to say, OK, guys, you have to stop Yuki Snura's car right now at this one particular moment. I mean, come on. You know, that, that, uh, Okay, there, there might be a faint possibility because obviously our minds have been tarnished by the memory of Nelson P K two 2008, Crash game, whatever it may be. But let's be real, guys. Do we seriously think this happens in Formula 1, a sport where it costs so much to run the car and everything? It's ridiculous, isn't it, Sundaram? Yeah, because so and I know there's been a lot of
2: comparisons being made to 2000, 2008 Singapore, but you need to remember that there were there was a very small group of people involved in that, probably just two to three or maybe four people involved in that. But this year, if you're actually talking about Red Bull Alpha Tauri, their mechanics, some people even went to say that when Mecha, uh, Alpha Tauri's mechanics were fixing Sonoda's seatbelt, they were actually giving him information or where on where he needs to stop on track. So. You're basically talking about two teams, their team principles, management, and even the mechanics being involved in this. That's just too much. Uh, there'll be too many loose ends over there. So I don't think so. That that's really, really possible. And I would like to believe that's how it functions. That's not how it functions.
1: I think we should give none of this crap any more airtime on our super popular show where millions are listening each time. No, but seriously, I mean, conspiracy theories are just out of the window. Uh, but the one thing for certain, you know, is that the credibility of formula 1 has been shaken uh after the abu dhabi 2021 incident which we all know what happened so it's only fair that people keep asking these questions but you know after a point uh you know conspiracy theories need to stop somewhere as well so the depth at which people are going uh you know somebody has turned around and said about sonoda uh, could loosen his seatbelt and he couldn't wear it back again. You know these are quick release seatbelts, and there are so many ways to technically explain why a lot of these conspiracy theories are act are actually crap, right? And and the first and most important thing, I mean, you know, it's not a point that um, Red Bull Racing needs to score. They're like a hundred points ahead, so they would definitely not want to risk expulsion from the championship for something so silly, especially when. Mercedes and Red Bull simulations believed that Max Verstappen was anyway going to win. So why would you fix a race? So why would you think of fixing a race that you are anyway going to win? And when you've already
0: literally got both the championships in the bag as well. So why even bother doing something quite like that? I just have to say it once. Bullshit. Great. I feel my chest feel a little bit heavy, a little (laughs) bit lighter now. Great. But let's move on to the implications of that, because obviously the VSC comes in. We see Max Verstappen diving in for a quick pit stop. And uh, the same happened with Mercedes as well. Verstappen tried to get a pit stop before that, but luckily for him, the timing was just great. Now, luckily, right? No conspiracy. We have done enough on that for a second. But eventually what happened was that Verstappen went on the hards and the Mercedes drivers were on the mediums. And in that case, Kunal, we noticed that Mercedes were able to catch up quite well. I think the gap was reduced to around 11 seconds from being somewhere around 20. Hamilton was really having a great, great time because obviously he was able to kind of get those mediums activated a little bit faster. And of course, the hearts take time to come into the race, right? So that that was a really fun period until we got to the safety car, the second safety car, uh, no, sorry, the first safety car, but the second stoppage of sorts that we had. With Valtteri Bottas, of course, stopping near turn one and Carlos Sainz making that move on Ocon, which we should get to in a couple of minutes time. But in that case, right, we get to the big question of this entire weekend, were well, Mercedes wrong in not bringing Lewis Hamilton in? Now, big one because obviously, at, at a circuit like Zandvoort, you, you can you can be inclined towards keeping track position where passing already is pretty hard, and you need quite a quite a big pace advantage to actually get a move done, as Sundara mentioned early on. But seriously, do you think it was a Mercedes team call to not favour Hamilton or they're screwing him over, or whatever term he's used on the team radio? Because on social media, people have come out with extremely, uh, let's say extreme views, if you can put it that way. But at that moment in time, was it a justified call in your opinion?
1: You know, it's in hindsight, we're all talking in hindsight. And firstly, I don't want us to bring up social media because this is where after a point, it's just like, oh my God, everybody has an opinion and hence everybody will tweet their opinion. At least I use Twitter, as you guys know. In my view, Mercedes uh were were sort of caught in in the middle of nowhere because they had a pre-race agreement where they played out this exact scenario that we will do a one-stop this is what's going to happen max is going to be behind and that pre-race agreement was probably that russell would sort of hold back max before he could attack lewis and then lewis would go on and win the race this was because lewis was ahead on the grid than george russell so it was not about favoring lewis it was about who could give you the best chance for the win now i assume that if russell would have jumped lewis at some point maybe they would have favored russell so that's that's one part right what we should also hence look at is was that uh, pre-race agreement something that pissed lewis hamilton off because he was very uh, annoyed on radio as we all know but you know that, that that's that's one thing to keep in mind but as the race evolved You know, you mentioned track position, Samuel. Track position is very important when the race is running in flow, right? But when there is a stoppage, when there is a restart, being on the right tire compound is far more important, as we again learned in Abu Dhabi last year. Abu Dhabi, again, being just one of the examples, right? So Mercedes, uh, at that time, chose to split strategy. They said, you know what? Lewis will stay on the tire that he already is on and try and defend Max while we will give George, or George decided to take the soft to go and attack attack Max, which happened. So in theory, they all did what they believed was right, which was put Max in a Mercedes sandwich, one will attack, one will defend, and we'll see where that goes, right? Now, of course, uh, Mercedes, a slower car, was on a slower compound, trying to fend off a faster car on a faster compound, and we all know how that plays out most of the time especially given that the drs was a little more powerful or a little more effective this year and the red bull anyway has more straight line speed advantage and then as mark hughes revealed uh lewis hamilton was actually in the wrong engine mode at the restart as well which is why max could literally drive past him and had to sort of lift off uh, you know fractions before crossing the the start finish line so that he didn't really overtake lewis before the race officially started as well so mercedes went aggressive they split strategy as they should as they would and in hindsight i believe they would do differently but you know in hindsight you can always go and win as many world championships as you want
0: You're so right about that. And on that same subject, Sundaram, I want to ask you this as well. Because Lewis, I mean, obviously we can get an idea that the pace differential between Red Bull and Mercedes definitely was there. For sure, Mercedes were closer. But it didn't seem like they were the faster car all weekend round. So, even if Lewis Hamilton had gone on the soft compound tyres at that safety car, would it really have meant that he would have been able to challenge Max? Because Red Bull Racing were firm with their decision, right? They were going to box for softs anyway. So on the same compound, with Max having track position, would it have made any difference? So I think the only question we're asking is, would Hamilton have finished second instead of finishing, what is it, fourth? I think that's that's the major question, right? And is Hamilton justified to be that angry about finishing fourth instead of second in this case?
2: No, if they, if they're all if they're all pitted and and gone on the same compound softs, then I don't see how Hamilton would have won this because generally they lacked pace or so generally Verstappen was a lot more quicker. The only way they could have done this was to have or do something different than Red Bull. So the only reason they, the only way they could have won this is if they had if they had, they could do.
0: Seemingly, the fireworks are on already. People are really enjoying Max's win and Mercedes failing in Navi Mumbai, aren't they?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's quite distracting, to be honest. But yeah, what what I was getting to say is that um, on, on the same compound, it would have been quite difficult for Hamilton. But what I'm trying to say is why settle for second and third? What, what is the reason? Why did Mercedes even have to do that? They're not in the championship fight anyway. Even they know this. They're not in there for the drivers or constructors championship. And what's the point of collecting points? What's the point of collecting podiums? If they had the opportunity of a win, they go for the win. And it's also because that car is very unpredictable. And what they are going to probably hate the most is that at this track, they had an opportunity for a win. Why not go for that and settle for second or third? So they had to go for the win and if, if, if it was a split strategy or if it was doing what they had to do was supposed to be opposite of what Red Bull does, they did give it a shot. They did give it a shot. And and secondly, also about uh, people saying that George Russell should have played the team game and, and tried to defend. I think that could have been a good option to guarantee Mercedes or even go for a more delayed sort of, uh, I mean, a fight into the race. But that is not George's responsibility. That's not his job to say that I'm going to sacrifice my race and let Hamilton win this. That's the team's call. And I don't think so that was actually made on the broadcast. So he had to look after his race also because Leclerc had switched to softs. And I think what he did from his side was right.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in the end, that high-speed game of chess just turned out in a way that Lewis Hamilton, from, you know, looking at winning the race, literally ended up finishing off the podium, right? And uh, he had three used soft compounds, uh, three used sets uh, of softs if he wanted to use them. But the reality is that uh, they would have probably thought that having Lewis hold max was probably a better uh, you know way of trying to get a race win than trying to put him on the same compound and go for anyway how it's all played out is why exactly why we've spent almost 30 minutes talking about strategy but a lot of things actually happened in sun food they did yeah and uh, before we get to that i just want to
0: point out one thing you remember bono always on the radio saying get in there lewis get in there the one time Bono didn't say get in there, Lewis had such a bad race, so maybe it's just a good rule of thumb. Get in there, Lewis. Every time you see an opportunity, get in the pits. No? Bad one. Okay, we move on. Uh, we talk about Ferrari for a second, because in this entire scenario, we I mean, I ex- essentially was expecting Ferrari to be a little bit closer. Because, yes, we, knew, we saw that they had qualifying pace, but in the race, they were nowhere to be seen. I mean, no pace at all no no way to challenge Russell for second place eventually as well because I thought that maybe on the soft compounds with all things leveled out with only so little laps to go I thought that Ferrari would be able to get past George Russell but that's not what happened eventually so To what extent can you blame it on degradation, Gunal, which is what the popular theory seems to be all around? That Ferrari, Leclerc, that is, we should get to science. I've been saying that for too long now, but the reason why Leclerc wasn't able to challenge was degradation purely because we saw that they were complaining about it on the radio, saying that deg is bad in the early part. So was that the reason why, according to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the opening stint of the race, when Leclerc was chasing down Max Verstappen, each time Leclerc increased his pace, Max was able to respond and increase his pace as well. But then Leclerc hit a ceiling much before, uh, you know, before Max could. So it was tires that were a limiting factor. And, you know, uh, just the way last weekend, it was about Ferrari asking a question to their drivers. I don't know if why they stopped asking the question this weekend. But this weekend, everything that Matheo Binotto has answered has been about, hey, your pit stops were bad. We can fix our pit stops, but our car performance was bad. Your tires were you know, being eaten off far more. We can fix that, but our performance was bad. We got overtaken on track. We can fix that, but our performance was bad. So my, what I'm trying to say is, Matteo Binotto has kept talking about performance being a deficit, and which is why they were unable to use strategy to their effect. And the truth is that Mercedes uh, were not as strong in qualifying as we've seen but for probably the second quickest car on the Sunday in Sanford. I
0: just so badly want to ask the question, so are series ahead of Ferrari now? But it's hypothetical, right? It's, it, it differs circuit to circuit. There's no concrete answer to so it. That, that it makes no sense to discuss that for far too long. But we should now finally come to science, now that we know why Leclerc wasn't quite there. And now that we know why Lewis couldn't quite win this. So... Sundaram, have you seen one of those Vine videos uh, on Reddit as well, where you see a person actually working in a storage house and they accidentally trip over one carton and then the entire storage room starts to break down and every single bottle or glass or whatever it may be starts to tumble. It's just what happened to Carlos Sainz, though. Just where, where do we begin with this weekend, actually? The bad qualifying or the bad start? or the bad pit stop with uh, with the tyres not ready, or the pit gun, or the move on Ocon under the yellow flags, or the unsafe release, or maybe the fact that he didn't get the right dinner after his race was over. I mean, where do we begin? And he looked absolutely distraught after after the race. He couldn't believe
2: what's actually happening to him and, and how, how bad his, his luck has actually been. And I think it started from, I mean, talking specifically about race day, it started from the first corner, that little bit of, of, of a touch that he had with Hamilton kind of probably compromised his whole race in terms of pace. I mean, generally, they lacked pace overall in in comparison to Mercedes and Red Bull. But I think he he did have a little bit of damage to his underbody, to his floor. And that probably took him out of the race straight away. What happened in the pits was, I have no words to describe it. But I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen the video, but there was actually a video of his pit stop and... Uh, the mechanic with the fourth tire was actually in front of the car. He was three seconds late into getting into position. And when his car pulls up, he was actually in front of the car and he couldn't wake, make his way around the mechanics to get to his position. And that's what took time. And I mean, I'm, I've, I've actually pulled up a list of things where Ferrari have ful- fumbled. And in the last six races, they've fumbled eight times. I can, have list, hey. out eight, I can list out eight points, but... That's the thing, we initially called Ferrari a title contender and but this is not how a championship winning team should do it or would do it. Things have to be a lot more smoother if you want to win a championship.
0: I think we were right all along. They they are title contenders for just title contenders on how to ruin your race consistently in new different
1: ways, Kunal, isn't it? It is. And you know, I liked how Carlos Sainz actually went onto the radio Uh, during his unsafe release because that was also one thing that happened with him, right? Where he says, guys, I saw the footage on the screen like imagine you know despite being a racing car driver uh, with limited visibility and so much of focus he's able to look at one of the screens he's able to see the replay of it right so he's now gone from being a formula one driver to a strategist to a sporting director for ferrari to now even being a ferrari fan you know where he was able to look at his own self and turn around and say it wasn't an unsafe release, I had to take avoiding action. And if I get a penalty, I'm going to go speak to the stewards about it. But either way, that's just what happened. I think I'd love to hear Sundaram's takes on the six times or eight times they messed up in six races. Maybe we should leave that for the Monza preview, Sundaram. It's not the best way to pay tribute to Ferrari, the most legendary Formula One team brand, but I think it's it's fair to leave it for that. But to, to my mind, uh, you know, there's one thing that signs should have sort of been pulled up for, which was not something at least I got clarity on, was did he actually overtake under yellow flags or not? And did he give the position back? Because I'm pretty sure I missed the visual of this till Sommel brought it up while we were preparing.
0: I'm still confused. I don't know why they didn't get a penalty for that Ferrari. Uh, the reason why they didn't get a penalty for the pit gun issue was that the FIA said that, oh, it's a tight pit lane, stuff like this happened. So that's the reason why they were able to bail out on that. But I, I don't see any official justification yet on the yellow flag pass on Ocon. And of course, we saw the kafafalo that happened where, where Sainz wasn't quite able to give the position back. So we shall get back to you on that when we have more information. I think Monza preview would be a good time to do so, but we have to speak about other things as well very quickly before we wrap up this episode. Another Spaniard who had quite the opposite of the day. Fernando Alonso, guys, started P13 and ended up finishing... Oh, I had it in my notes. I just quickly pull it back up. Where was Alonso again? P6. p P6? Yeah, P6. P6. So, after Carlos signs his penalty, that, that's where he eventually ended up finishing. So... As far as I can remember, Alonso was on the hard compound tyres for most of the race until the safety car came in and gave him essentially a free pit stop to be on the right compounds. And yes, he was not able to get past Lando Norris initially, but eventually the, the safety car helped him out in the long run. And as was where Alonso was able to pip him and maybe get a few seconds on Carlos Sainz, which eventually promoted him up to P6. So great weekend for him. But also, guys... Ocon could have also had a similar one if Alpine had decided that, okay, we don't want to continue with the one stop. So they essentially split their ways and said, okay, Fernando goes one way, Esteban goes the other. But it still very much looks like a very balanced uh, lineup, this Sundaram. And they are edging very close towards just solidifying that P4 slot.
2: Yeah, actually, before the race, um, from what I picked up from everyone's. Uh, opinions after Friday practice was that the hard tire is is not a suitable tire uh, on, on race day and while I was looking at everyone's tire allocation I when I came to Alonso I was like okay he has to basically do a soft medium soft and stay away from the hearts and during the race broadcast when I saw Alonso switch to hearts I was like Alpine have have totally fudged this and this is going to be another wrong decision that they've made but uh, thankfully i've had to eat up my own words and i think he was one of the earliest people who switched to hearts and that had brilliant pace, space probably because of the, the the climate the weather conditions and also because of very good track evolution and that's something actually which people picked off and everyone moved off to hearts because they had very good pace
1: Track evolution is actually very interesting because that's something that happened a lot. First is a theory from Pirelli, which was reported that the sand, which was on the circuit, kept getting cleaned off as more and more sessions ran through the circuit. And hence, the hard, for example, which was expected to be a second away from the soft tire, eventually was less than that. So the the gap between the compounds also ended up narrowing in the first place, right? So all in all, I think this high-speed game of chess was was fantastic. And we're going to have a higher-speed game of chess come up uh, this weekend. It's the final race of the triple header. And I really hope you guys have conserved all your energy for meeting the Tifosi. And let's hope that for all the love that they give Ferrari, their answers or their prayers are answered. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's certainly
0: hope so. Let's hope that the Divorcee won't be dejected by the time they come to Monza. And if anything, let's hope we get to see something different this time. And let's hope we get to see a fun strategic race. And if we do have that, it'll be amazing to watch it with us live on PayTM Insider with Steve Slater, the legendary Formula One commentator, also joining us along. And now the tickets are 100% free. So click on the link below to register yourself for the event. We watch the race together. We analyze it, we understand how it happens and you can send in your questions live and stand a chance to win some amazing posters by Hayden Prince as well if you take part in our quiz competition. So that's another reason for you to tune in this Sunday. So see you there, folks. But first, we go here on the podcast for the Monza preview. So stay tuned for that and have a good time. Bye-bye.